Good morning. My name is Frank Wong. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Well, friends, this obviously isn't the way that I had envisioned um, delivering this sermon. But before we get started on the sermon, I thought that it would be a good idea to encourage all of us as we feel the loss of in-person worship acutely. Uh, for some of us in the congregation, this isn't a new feeling. You've been following along online the whole time. But for some of us in the congregation, this isn't a new feeling or uh, a feeling, a return to a feeling that we didn't really like. But, uh, you know, for the folks that have been worshiping in person, uh, this week will feel a little jarring, a little disappointing, just a little less in general, right? Um, but I would encourage you to take the time to stop. Uh, to set aside our feelings of loss and to think through the worship, the privilege that it is to worship, uh, to have the word of God proclaimed to our hearts. This week, we can clearly see the fallenness and brokenness of our world that keeps us from worship that as it is intended to be. But the fact that we can worship at all is a marvelous wonder, for it is only by grace that we can worship at all. And you know, we will be talking about that a little later on, but we want to come to worship with the right mindset, starting at the right point, which is relying and depending upon the grace of God for everything. And we say that a lot, that we depend upon the grace of God for everything. Well, we depend on His grace for doing even sort of normal, mundane, typical, expected things like going to church on Sunday. Right? It's only by grace that we're able to do that. Why? Because we're sinners and we don't deserve to worship the Lord. Right? It's only by grace that we can come and worship. Now, um, we have an opportunity to see sort of the not yet portion of worship. Right? The, the, the fact that worship here in this world is less than what we hope it to be in the future. Uh, less than what we look forward to when the Lord comes again. So let us worship and cry out to the Lord, pray, praising Him that we can worship, but also praying that we would be able to return to in-person worship quickly and soon. Now, our primary concern is, of course, the health of the congregation and especially the health of the Rist family. Uh, please be praying for Mark as he continues to fight COVID. He has uh, loved and ministered to us for so many years and worked powerfully for the gospel in each of our hearts. And so let it's our turn. It's our turn to love and care for him and his family just as he would for us. And finally, before uh, we start in on the sermon, a few things to take note as um, we sort of move into the rest of our week. Um, and these are the measures that we're taking to spread the, uh, to, to avoid spread of infection. And so all of our community groups this week are meeting online. Uh, please talk to your community group elder or uh, community group host uh, to get login information to, so that you can participate in that. This also means that youth group will be uh, canceled this week. We'll be, well, we'll be meeting online and I'll be sending out information uh, on that as well. And then lastly, right, lastly, let's take a moment to thank God. We went 16 weeks of in-person worship without a case within the church, um, that we know of at least. Um, this is our first COVID case within the immediate church family that we know of. 
that means that we went seven whole months of without a case that we saw seven months of wellness and health while the pandemic ravaged the world that is an immense blessing let us praise god for that and remember us being here online after being in person um, for quite some time is not unexpected it was bound to happen at some point and that it has taken so long to happen is an immense blessing in of itself so let's praise god for that okay enough about our circumstances this morning uh, i hope that you've been going through the whole worship service with us this morning with all the singing and the calling to worship and the the confession of sin the assurance of pardon i hope that you've done all of that this morning because those are all critical components of our worship and now it's time to turn our attention to the word of god if you would turn with me in your bibles to the old testament book of judges we'll be in chapter 16. for those of you that are new or haven't been following along we're in the midst of a series on the most, most misunderstood stories in the Bible. If you remember a few years back, we did a series on the most misunderstood verses in the Bible, and this is the sequel series. Our passage this morning is the very end of Samson's life, uh, dealing primarily with his infamous relationship with Delilah. And since the passage is quite long, we'll be reading it as we go along. But before we dive in, Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would be with us this morning uh, as we worship you, that you would uh, remind our hearts that uh, it is a great privilege to come before you and worship you uh, any day of the week. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us uh, safe uh, in the coming week, uh, that you would be with Mark and his family uh, as they deal with uh, this virus in their house. Keep them safe. Give Mark extra measures of comfort. Would you lay your hand upon him and heal him quickly? And Lord, we pray that uh, wherever we may be in, with our hearts this morning, that we would uh, turn our attention to you and hear the wonder of your gospel in the story of Samson this morning. So Lord, be with us as we come to your word. Speak. Uh, through it to us and transform us by your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, parents, uh, do you remember a time when your little kid had a meltdown about something, but it was really actually because they were simply hungry? Or maybe it was this morning, or maybe it was decades ago. You, if it was decades ago, you probably remember like it was yesterday or this morning. Uh, but when it's happening, it can be kind of hard to figure out sometimes what's going on uh, because you've got this screaming child carrying on about who knows what, and we tend to gravitate towards dealing with whatever the kid's screaming about. And so many times we get sucked into dealing with the presenting issue. It's easy and natural because that's what the issue is on the surface, right? And we want to listen to them and address what they're screaming about. But what we really need to do is to stop and think about when was the last time they ate something. Incidentally, this is true of teens and sometimes adults and even senior pastors. When Dr. Dave gets grumpy, it's important to always have a sandwich or sub on hand to soothe him. Okay, so quick life tip. Anytime he's grumpy, just give him a sandwich. And, you know, our passage is a little like this. 
right? The story of Samson and Delilah is really well known. Um, the spiritual lessons that we should be learning from it seem to be pretty obvious, right? Don't give in to lust. Don't marry outside the faith. Don't squander the gifts the Lord has given you like Samson did. Be strong like Samson. Just don't sin like Samson. Um, Samson is a warning for what not to do. He's a cautionary tale for the consequences of sin. You know, this is pretty easy and pretty obvious. But like the crying child or Dr. Dave sometimes in the office, if we try to go for the obvious takeaways and applications, we're going to be frustrated because that's not the real root of the issue or the real main point of the passage. As with most of our un misunderstood passages, we tend to focus down on the characters of the story rather than the person directing each of those characters. Samson and Delilah isn't really about Samson and Delilah. Rather, it's about God saving his people through grace despite the flawed and sinful man that succumbs to pride, lust, and the temptation of Delilah. So, really, the story is just context for the overarching story of salvation and faith that the Lord is weaving together in and through Samson. So first, we're going to start where everyone starts uh, and look closely at Samson and Delilah. But we're not going to stop there. Because then we're going to look at Samson's life story and context within the book of Judges. That will give us a wider perspective um, to understand how Judges 16 fits into God's overarching story, especially within the book of Judges. And finally, we're going to use that understanding to see how it points us to where the Bible always points us, to Jesus and to the gospel. So let's dive right in, starting in Judges 16, verse 4, uh, reading to verse 21. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we might bind him to humble him. And we will, give, uh, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that no one can subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall be weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, upon you Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that had not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So, he, so while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and uh, wove them into the web. And he made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money into their hands, uh, brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and the strength and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. So the big question is, how could Samson be so dumb? Three times she asked him the secret of his strength and used it to try to rob him of his strength. Surely he knew what she was doing. So why does he stay? Why does he continue with her? Isn't it obvious that she doesn't love him like he loves her? But I think that there's something else going on here. We're looking at this assuming that he wants to keep his strength. But what we don't realize is just how much Samson just wants to be like any other man, as verse 17 puts it. Simply a normal man living with, a wo- with the woman that he loves. Samson's thinking, maybe if I tell her the truth, be vulnerable with her, then she'll love me as I love her. And it's a delusion, right? But one that we've seen time and again. Love makes us do crazy things sometimes. But it's more than that, because Samson's desire to be with Delilah flies in the face of everything that he's supposed to stand for. He's, in a sense, throwing away God's call on his life because he's tired of carrying, away, carrying the weight of the secret, the weight of the position of judge, and ultimately the weight of his Nazarite vow. And that's the issue, the Nazarite vow, because that vow has shaped every part of Samson's life. Every time he brushes the hair out of his eyes, he's reminded that his whole life since before birth has been set aside for God. In every waking moment, Samson is reminded that he is not his own and he's tired of it. He simply wants to be with Delilah like anyone else. He wants to be the master of his own life. But this trek to breaking his Nazarite vow didn't start when he met Delilah, as so many sort of preachers would have us think. Beware sort of loose and foreign women because of the temptation they bring. Look, they will cause you to cast away everything that you've stood for in your entire life. No, Samson has been on this road of vow breaking for a long, long time. Remember, Nazarites are, according to the vows that we find in number six, 
supposed to do three things. One, not drink wine or anything from the grapevine. Two, no razor shall touch his head. Three, he shall not go near a dead body. These three things would symbolize the person's consecration and separation unto the Lord. But what has Samson done? Well, in Judges 14, before any of Samson's conflicts with the Philistines, he was attacked by a lion, which he then tore to pieces with his bare hands. That's crazy. Later, as he would come back past that same carcass, he would find uh, a hive of bees inside the dead corpse. And he would use his hands to scrape some honey out of the hive that he could eat it. And then, little later on, he would find a jawbone um, that he would then use to kill 1,000 Philistines. And the text tells us that the jawbone is fresh, meaning that it's raw. It's right off of a dead carcass. So, so much for not going near a dead body. Then what about the second? Um, what about uh, not drinking anything? Later in, the cha in chapter 14, Samson throws a, a wedding feast because he wants to get married to a Philistine woman. And the word for feast here means explicitly that alcohol was present. So there goes the vow to avoid wine. And now in Judges 16, there goes the hair. So we've seen that Samson is methodically breaking every single one of the vows in the lead up to his affair with Delilah. Plus, there's also the call to deliver the Jews from the Philistines. Well, how's that going? Well, by the time we get to Delilah, he's tried to marry a Philistine woman at the beginning of Judges 14. And then at the beginning of Judges 16, we see that he's gone to the Philistine capital of Gaza. And what does he do that do there? He spends a night with a Philistine prostitute. And so he's not so much trying to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines as he's addicted to their women. Now, sure, he's killed a thousand of them, but you know, that's a far cry from deliverance. Plus, in Judges 15, it doesn't seem like Samson has much of a problem with the Philistines. All the violence and conflict that he has done is really out of simple revenge or self-defense. In Judges 15, he was asked directly and bluntly why he was fighting the Philistines. His response was, as they did to me, so have I done to them. That doesn't sound like he's killing Philistines out of a desire to free the Israelites or as a desire to serve the Lord. No, he's killing Philistines because it's simple, re simple revenge. Now, we can add all of that to verse 20 of our passage today. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before, as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And so that verse really gives us insight into what's going on in Samson's head. He's thinking, I will go out as I've always done and destroy my enemies with my outrageous strength. I killed lions. I killed a thousand people with a jawbone, right? Verse 20 reveals so much about Samson and how he views the supernatural strength that enabled him to do all these crazy things, right? Samson thinks of his strength as his. He doesn't think of them as, he doesn't think of it as gifts given to him that could be then taken away by God. 
His outrageous strength has delivered him from one sticky situation of one sticky sinful situation to another sticky sinful situation throughout the entire course of his life. And now he thinks, this time, how's it going to be any different? And so why, does he, so why did he stay? Why, did he, why was he so dumb? Why did he, you know, why was he deluded with what Delilah was doing? What we see is a self-assured, self-confident man who has broken vows left and right and rejected the call on his life to serve as Israel's judge. He has been captured both by, well, he has been both captured by his lust for Philistine women and not captured by the call of God. And so he stayed because he wanted to be normal. He just wanted to be like any other guy. And usually this is where sermons would turn towards applications, right? About following God and avoiding temptation. But that would be to sort of laser focus on the characters of the story without considering the context. So let's not stop here and look at the context. And let's start at the beginning of Samson's life. Samson was chosen before conception to be the new judge, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to his barren mother um, to tell her to stop drinking wine and to touch nothing unclean because the child would be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And that's somewhat new, right? The, usually the Lord would have chosen one of the adults to rise up and lead the Israelites against their oppressors. But now that's, there's a different threat. The threat wasn't that the Israelites were being oppressed. The threats... The, the threat was that the Israelites didn't seem to mind. The cycle that we've seen in the book of Judges is that the people sin against God. Then God sends oppressors to discipline them. And under that oppression, Israel turns back to God and cries out uh, for help. And so the Lord sends a judge to deliver them and to rule over them. But once that judge dies, the people go back to their sin and the cycle just sort of starts all over again. Only this time, when we get to Samson, the people don't cry out to the Lord. In Judges 15, after Samson had started making trouble with the Philistines, 3,000 men of Judah confronted Samson about his political agitation. 3,000 of them. They said, do you not know that the Philistines, the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? They then sought to bind Samson and turn him over to the authorities. And so do you see what's making them upset? Samson is rocking the boat. He's resisting and antagonizing the Philistines, the very people that the Israelites ought to be itching to get rid of. But don't you know that, the, that they are the rulers over us? That's, that's their reaction. How, how backward, right? That statement alone shows us that they've given up that they've fallen into despair, that they've grown accustomed and comfortable to the oppression that they're suffering. So much so that they don't want to rock the boat. And so the threat isn't oppression. The threat isn't the Philistines oppressing the Israelites. The threat is assimilation. They were essentially a generation away from never knowing anything other than Philistine rule. They would intermarry like Samson tried to do, and they'd be assimilated into Philistine culture. They'd cease to be a distinctive people of God. 
And so the Lord doesn't just need, doesn't need to just deliver them, but he also needed to get the people to see that they needed deliverance. And it's worth noting that the judgeship stories seem to get worse too, right? While we talk about a judge's cycle of sin, uh, judgment by God crying out, and then deliverance, we actually should be sort of talking about the judge's spiral. It's a downward spiral because all things seem to get worse as we go along. You know, at the beginning of Judges, the judges were mighty and righteous men that delivered the Israelites from their oppressors and gave the land rest. For the four judges that we get, including Gideon at the beginning of the book, each of their stories ends with, and the land had rest for X number of years. But after Gideon, that phrase, the land had rest, disappears entirely. Rather, the judges simply judge Israel, and their judgeships tend to get shorter as well, that the, the cycle seems to get tighter. There's less time as they sort of apostatize and turn back and um, apostatize again. And so we see, and then we even see conflicts arise within the people of Israel, not just against outside oppressors. And so the fighting isn't just against those people over there. We're fighting against ourselves. And so by the time we get to Samson, who is the last judge who is mentioned by name, things are really bad. The people didn't want to turn back to God or even cry out to him for deliverance. They were comfortable in their sin and their suffering. And so Samson becomes God's agitator between the Philistines and the Israelites to rouse the people from their comfort and spiritual deadness. And when we look at it from a national and spiritual perspective, we can understand that final episode of Samson's life as the cosmic showdown between the God of Israel and the God of the Philistines. So let's read the end of our passage this morning, verses 23 through 31. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I might lean, lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the, on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with, uh, all, uh, bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. And so what do we see? This, we see that this was a worship service. Notice the sacrifice that was being prepared. 
It was supposed to be a victory celebration of Dagon, the primary god of the Philistines, over the god of Israel. That's verse 24. It was a chance to rub their victory in God's face. And that's why they called to bring out Samson. It was meant to humiliate him, uh, as well as to humiliate his God. It was a public declaration of the superiority of Dagon over God. And even the mill that they stuck uh, Samson in during his imprisonment was a form of humiliation since Dagon was the God of wheat and grain. They were making Samson, the chosen ruler and judge over Israel, process the bounty of what Dagon had given to the Philistines, in a sense. But we know how the story ends, right? Samson pulled down the temple, killed at least 3,000 of them on the roof, plus all of those that were in the temple, killing all of those lords, uh, and killing more in his death than he had in his life. But the real victory here isn't Samson over the Philistines, it's God over Dagon. God's chosen instrument destroyed Dagon's stronghold, his temple. He killed Dagon's people, interrupted Dagon's great sacrifice, and shown Dagon to be completely impotent to stop God, right? The humiliated, supposedly weak, and uh, captured Samson, who was no threat at all, had utterly destroyed Dagon's stronghold. And so Samson had won a victory in that Dagon was shown to be nothing, nothing in comparison to God. And in that there would be and in that there would be sort of a conflict moving forward between the Israelites and the Philistines that would ultimately uh, be resolved by the hero of next week's passage, David, right? Think David and Goliath, right? And so knowing that there was this sort of cosmic conflict angle to Samson's conflict with the Philistines and that his life was serving as a wake-up call to the Israelites to get them to actually hate their oppressors, we actually have an interesting situation where God is showing off a, a little bit of his grace. Because we've read our whole passage and yet we've left one verse out. Verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, that line about the hair of his head growing again isn't meant to say that the strength is in the hair. It's magic. Long hair equals strength. The boys in the youth group are all mostly rocking long locks of hair. Are they gonna be like supernaturally strong? No, I think it's pretty safe to say that they can't kill thousands of soldiers with the jawbone of a donkey or rip city gates off of their mountings and then haul them 40 miles, as we see in the verse preceding our passage, right, this morning, which is crazy. 40 miles, city gates, crazy. Rather, rather, it's to say that God remained steadfastly faithful to Samson despite everything that he had done to reject God and God's call on his life. So, do you see the wonderful imagery of God's steadfastness to Samson? Samson did everything in his power to break his connection with God, that Nazarite vow, remember. He allowed his head, uh, hair to be shaved, which was the last remaining tie to his Nazarite vow. He uh, touched dead things. He drank wine. He married, tried to marry Philistine women, right? He tried to destroy his consecration or sanctification unto the Lord. But God wouldn't let him go, just as surely as the hair on his head grew. And why? 
Samson definitely didn't deserve to be God's instrument to begin Israel's deliverance, nor to be granted the strength to have any kind of victory over the Philistines. He had lost the right to be God's judge, or to be, yeah, God's judge, Israel's judge, long ago. No, he was saved and used for God's purposes simply because God is faithful to the faithless. God is faithful to the faithless. And that's the nature of grace. It comes to those that don't deserve it, right? It comes to those that deserve only judgment and wrath. And looking at the wider view of Israel as a whole, they too had lost the right to be called God's people. They were faithless, continually turning from God to idolatry. How many times have we seen the people turn from God back to idolatry? As many judges as we've seen in the book of Judges. And now they're not even crying out to God. These Israelites love their sin, have gotten comfortable with it, and even protect it from God's agent, which is Samson, right? Remember, they tried to bind him and turn him over? Do they deserve God's faithfulness to them when they were so very faithless? No. And yet, he is faithful to begin to save them from themselves when they didn't even want it in the first place. And that's the core of the gospel, that Jesus came to save the lost, to save people that weren't even looking for him. Jesus came to save people that didn't and couldn't and wouldn't save themselves. Jesus came for those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. These people were by nature children of wrath, living in the passions of their flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That sounds like Samson, right? And it also sounds like you and me. Friends, when we look at the story of Samson and Delilah, we are quick to condemn Samson. But when we do so, we condemn ourselves. How many of us have run from God's call on our lives? How many of us have put it off saying, just not now? Whenever we fail in our various callings, it's not just that we can't do it, but that we don't want to do it. Let me give an example. For students, the primary call on your life is to be, uh, is to be a student, right? That's the primary call on your life from God. How many of you were and are just like me? Massive procrastinators. Or maybe you're simply not doing the work because you can't be bothered to turn in the work. There's an epidemic of that going on at all levels of schooling. Or maybe there's something or someone else that's sucking up all of your time and attention. Video games, boyfriend, girlfriend, who knows? But that doesn't feel like I'm rejecting God's call for my life. But in actuality, that's exactly what it is. I'm holding God's call for my life at bay, keeping it right where I want it. God's call for my life on my terms. That sounds like Samson. Or parents, right? What are, what's our call? Our call is to be gracious, patient, and attentive to the children that we are called to steward, to show them Christ, to set before them an example of Christ. And that's really hard, right? When we're at our limit and beyond, when we're tired and hungry and grumpy, 
we are still called to image Christ, to die to self and to show grace that is beyond ourselves. That's our call. And I'll be the first to say that I run easily from this call, straight into what I want to do, which is to be angry, to snap, or to be distracted by my phone, or a whole list of other things, right? Or what about the call to be a witness to the grace and gospel of Jesus? How are we doing with that call? I'll bet that we have a whole long list of excuses and reasonings to justify running from that particular call. I know that I do. The list goes on and on for, of the ways in which we run from God's call in our life, that we reject it, just like Samson did. But as with Samson and Israel, God was not content to leave us there at, in our death and our transgression. Rather, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made, al made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that we have been saved, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I basically lifted that straight from Ephesians 2. My friends, this is the wonder of the gospel. We are often like the characters in the Bible that are the worst. It's easy to see sin in them. And when we're honest with ourselves, it's easy to see sin in ourselves. We don't deserve anything but wrath, judgment, and death. That's 100% slam dunk. That's what we deserve, full stop. We have no hope, nothing to stand on, no chance, except for the grace of God, except for the grace of Jesus. Because he is faithful to the faithless. This is why we can rejoice that we're, we can worship at all this morning. Because it is only by grace that we can even come to worship at all. Otherwise, we'd be like the Israelites, comfortable in our sin, comfortable in the oppression that we live in. Now, we ought to sit and dwell on that great truth for as long as we can. But we also need to apply this practically to our lives. Now that we know the gospel of grace, that Jesus came and died for us, that we might live in him, that he lived a, a life that we were supposed to live and died the death that we were supposed to die on our behalf. When we know that, what are the implications on our life? Why do we care and how does this change us? Well, all of the things that we would say about Samson are true. All of those sort of rote things like um, the usual things that we hear about in sermons on Samson and Deliah, are those are mostly all true. We ought to embrace our callings. We ought to be faithful to the Lord. We ought to be aware of temptation and lust. But we also need to know that we can't do it, just like Samson couldn't. We have a call that we cannot hope to complete. And so we should do what Samson did and what Jesus calls us to do, to come to the Lord and ask for help. That's what Samson did at the very end, that in his weakness, he became strong, right? And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians. He says, um, 
God's power is made perfect in my weakness. And so I will boast all the more in my weakness that the strength and grace of God may abound and be shown uh, great and glorious. We need to come to the Lord and ask for help. The Lord is the hero of the story. He's the main point of it all. He's the one with the strength to turn the sinful man into a useful instrument for his purpose. He's the one to give grace to a sinner like Samson, such that he ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And so we're going to end with 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, brothers, sisters, we are called to be righteous and sanctified completely. That's not a high bar at all, is it? Right? But that's our call and nothing less. We are called to be righteous and we have no hope of doing it. So how can we possibly keep our whole spirit, soul, and body blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? We can't. But he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So let us strive as hard as we can, not because we think we can achieve something through our efforts, but because the Lord has given us the privilege of being a part of what he will surely do. He takes the lustful, the arrogant, the sinful like Samson, and he accomplishes his purpose to his glory. And what is that purpose? That we might be conformed to his image, that we might be like Christ, that we would be his glory. Do you believe that? That's something you need to pray about. Let's pray. Father God, we, we are sinful people. We run from you at every chance. And yet, Lord, you are faithful to the faithless. You have been faithful to us who deserve nothing from you but wrath and judgment and death. But Lord, you didn't give us that. You gave us your son, your living and precious son, that we may be alive in him and made to be what we always ought to have been, perfect and righteous in you. Lord, we have this great call upon our lives and we have no hope of accomplishing it. Help us, we pray. Help us to strive for righteousness, for that unattainable goal, that we might worship you in our striving. And Lord, we know that we will not accomplish any of it except by your grace. And so, Lord, we know that you will surely do it. And because of that surety, we come before you and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great worshiping with you. Um, Hopefully we'll see you next week uh, in person, but we'll let you know. Um, Have a great week.